0: What's the state of play in Britain's museums in 2022? Well, art historian, broadcaster and former British Museum Director Neil McGregor returns to BBC Radio 4 this spring with a new series, The Museums That Make Us. The series looks at the changing ways in which museums around the UK are telling the stories of their local communities. Neil spoke to our deputy editor, Matt Elton, about how these institutions can help us make sense of the present and the future.
1: To start with, I wondered if you could just talk about uh, what the sort of scope and aim of your new
2: series is. What we wanted to do was look at 20 museums across the whole of the UK, uh, from the north of Scotland to the south of England, Northern Ireland to East Anglia, uh, and see how museums are rethinking their purpose in the community, how they're using objects to engage differently with their visitors to address new kinds of questions. So it's about the civic role of the museum, the museum as a player in the life of the community, because everywhere we look, that's what's happening. Every place is re-looking at its history, at its collections, at its visitors, at its public, and trying to put the two together in a new way. And what emerges is a very fascinating set of stories, where different regions, different cities have particular questions they want to address, and they're using their collections to do that. In every case, we asked the museum to choose one object, not their greatest treasure, but one object that sums up the way in which they're now addressing a particular question or a particular part of the community. And in 20 museums, we now have 20 objects and the curators talking about the object and always members of the public talking about what it means to them and how they now see the museum as part of the community, shaping the community for the future.
1: And we'll get on to some of those specific institutions and specific objects in a minute. I just want to go back to something you mentioned there, which is about the fact that museums are rethinking their role. What do you think has caused the need for museums to do that?
2: I think it's an awareness that the museum is, in many places now, almost the only part of the public realm where you can have difficult, serious conversations where every citizen comes in on equal terms, big questions can be asked, and you can put those questions in the context of history in a much longer sweep. So I think it's museums understanding that they have a unique role for one thing. Uh, They're almost the only place now where you can see the local problem, the problem of the moment, or the possibility of the moment in the bigger sweep, that you're part of something much bigger. The other thing is, of course, the the pressure, I think, to show why museums need to be there. There's been a very proper public debate about what public services do we need. And everywhere, I think, museums are demonstrating why we need our museums, why a healthy society, our society to be healthy, to grow, to flourish, needs museums, to let it think more deeply about itself and think more positive, more fruitfully about its future. So the relationship
1: between museums and the local community has
2: uh, changed, if you like. It's changed in several ways. What I find most interesting about it is that the museum for a long time was thought of as a place where you looked at the past and you explored and understood the past. That's still true, but as To that purpose, I think, has been added the understanding that that past is also a way of a mirror of our current concerns and an indication of what we could be in the future. So it's an expansion of the role of the museum from being about the past only to being how the past helps us rethink our future. And that's a big turn. That's a very big turnaround, I think. Mm.
1: Does it also mean that museums are saying something about our identity in the present moment?
2: We wanted to look at that. Museums always do. History always does. The Part of the thinking behind the series was the current debate about history. Why do we need to keep re-examining history in every generation? Why is history always different? And why does it need to change? And you know the debates, we all know the debates that have been going on, for instance, about statues and what statues say about our history, how we now feel about that history. What we wanted to demonstrate, what we wanted to explore was how every museum is revisiting its history. What are the parts of the history that need to be looked at more closely, re-examined, re-evalued, re-evaluated, because that is about who we are now we have questions we need to ask about our identity. And so one of the questions we've been asking about the national museums in Wales, in Northern Ireland, in Scotland, what that identity means now, how a museum reflects or reflects on that national identity.
1: Do you think there is still a place for national museums? We've been talking about
2: national museums outside London. I think If you're looking at the past 30 years of our country, one of the biggest questions has been how the idea of the four nations is articulated, re-articulated, redefined. In all three of the nations outside England, the question of their relationship to England and to each other has been right at the top of the political agenda. And where is that question of what it means to be Scottish today or Welsh today better explored and perhaps more neutrally explored than in the National Museum. So I think they have a huge role at the moment, perhaps in many ways a more important role than they've had um, for the last 50 or 60 years in addressing that question. We should talk about some of the places you've
1: been, you're still in the middle of making the series, I know. Are there any particular places or I suppose objects that illustrate some of these themes well, do you think?
2: Yes, well, we're, 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 we're halfway through making the programmes um, as you and I have this conversation. Um, so we've, we've done, uh, so, and we've been working slowly north. Um, so so we're, we've just got to Yorkshire and we've been in Northern Ireland. Uh, but what is, I think, very interesting, if I take one, one example, um, which I think is a, a very telling one, the National Museum of Northern Ireland in Belfast. Obviously, a a museum where that question is an extremely important one. What does it mean to be uh, Northern Irish, uh, to be uh, a citizen of Northern Ireland? One of the statements they keep making in that museum in Belfast is in addressing questions like the Troubles, that Northern Ireland has a shared history, but it doesn't have a shared memory because the different communities remember and understand the past differently. So they wanted to find an object that would create some kind of shared memory or indicate a shared memory about which you could talk, which they could demonstrate. And very brilliantly, they chose an object from the Channel 4 series, the Derry Girls. that uh, One uh, very hilarious, very funny uh, TV series about this group of four young girls from Derry, London Derry, um, from a Catholic school. Uh, and the, they've chosen the moment in the episode where the four girls go on a bridge building, community building, harmony forming uh, weekend with boys from a Protestant school. And part of the exercise is on a blackboard to write down the things that are different between the two communities and on another blackboard, the things that they share. The great joke, of course, is that the shared blackboard is completely empty at the end, and the the differences blackboard is absolutely covered with uh with, with points, many of them absolutely ridiculous, silly, funny things um about uh the different ways Protestants and Catholics think about each other, which is really what it tells. It was a great success in the series. The object is now in the permanent collection of the National Museum in Belfast, is much visited by school groups, and it does exactly what they hoped. It's a shared memory of that central question of Northern Irish identity. And it's in itself an object about dialogue, conversation. It's also, of course, in parallel with their exhibition on the troubles, a remarkable statement that you can actually start talking and thinking about the causes of the troubles. And we're now almost in a position to be able to start laughing about them. And you can share the laughter. And that kind of object is exactly what we wanted to look at. Where a museum is addressing a particular question, a particular problem, with an object and has found a way of engaging in the civic debate in a very, very powerful way because everybody we spoke to there points out that the museum has always been a neutral space. It is the space where all the communities could come. It was theirs, belonged equally to everybody. So it's the ideal place for them to be an active participant in building the community.
1: That's so interesting you're talking about sort of the need to reach out and appeal to all
2: members of society.
1: Do you think that as communities have changed and as people have moved or populations shifted, that's changed what a museum needs to do in its own way?
2: I think it's probably always been true of the museum. But as you say, the populations have changed. And so the stories from the past that the museum focuses on have to change. And a good example of of, of of that kind of change uh, would be in Bristol, um, where obviously, particularly in the last 50 years, uh, immigration has changed the population of the city. So the story of Bristol that has to be told in the museum has to include now the story of those who have arrived uh, since the Second World War. And in Bristol, very I expected that... The Museum would choose the statue of Edward Colston because that's what we all think about immediately at the moment when we hear about Bristol, and we know that the statue is now in the museum. in fact, they'd done something very different. They decided to place the whole story of racial tension, the legacy of Empire in a much broader, longer narrative, so they chose the bus that was at the center of the bus boycott in the early 1960s in Bristol. At that point, the local trade unions refused to allow West Indian, Afro-Caribbean and Asian uh, immigrants to be bus drivers or conductors. They wouldn't let them work on the buses. And in protest, particularly the West Indian community Uh, decided to launch a boycott of the buses. And this was one of the buses targeted. And that boycott eventually led to a complete change of the regulations. Um, The unions and the employers changed their position and the immigrants were able to join the workforce on the buses. So it's a very powerful moment in the history of modern Bristol. It's also a moment in the history of modern Britain, it's just before the Race Relations Act. It really reminds us all of the problems that those immigrant communities faced at that point. And you can get on the bus. It's a wonderful experience. You can actually climb into the bus. And those selections of different histories from the past, I mean, it's been in the museum for a long time, but to bring it into focus now, talk about it now, present it, particularly for visits, particularly school visits, is only... These are these are the things that I think are happening across the country in, in a very powerful way.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: What is very special, I think, about the British tradition of engaging with our history is that that has never, ever been controlled by the centre. In France, quite... Uh, to take the obvious example, the French state, the French government, has always decided what French history is, what will be taught in schools, and every school will study the same thing. There is a French official view of history. We've never had that in our country.
1: It's really interesting that um, you talked about school visits there, and we talked about Dairy Girls, which has a kind of a wide appeal, but is also kind of aimed at younger people. Do you think that museums need to reach out to younger people um, in a way that wasn't perhaps the case so much before the internet happened, for instance?
2: Well, I think they, they demonstrably are reaching out to younger people. Um, I mean, not just with the internet. Um, and it's, it's, it's not just, of course, school visits are a regular part to remind or to make clear to children at a very early age that this is their space, their museum, Um, But the use of museums more and more for concerts, Uh, uh, we've just been in Liverpool, um, in the the Museum of Liverpool, Um, and the, the role that museum right on the waterfront of the Mersey plays as a civic space where there are concerts, where when people are out walking, just enjoying themselves, you can come in and out of the museum. That's very much a space where young people come. And the kind of stories museums tell, the kind of of entertainment that's offered with what you might learn is certainly attracting uh, a much younger audience.
1: And the space is woven into the community in a way that's not just about the history; it's about the actual facility
2: itself. That's again very interesting. I think um, in almost, certainly in all the big cities, whether you're talking about Birmingham or Liverpool, um, the the museum as in every way part of the public realm. They're open free. The great museums; it's one of the great traditions of our country, and that of course allows the museum to play this civic role, an active role in helping people to rethink who they are, um, because you can come in and out for five minutes, 10 minutes, entertainment, and then go upstairs, whatever. Um, So that idea of the civic realm is being developed everywhere.
1: Another of the themes of your series is uh, loss and longing. Can you talk a bit about what that means in terms of museums and history, I suppose? The whole
2: series is about museums responding to changes in a population, changes in the concerns of the population. So, Clearly, one of the changes recently has been the growing concern about national identity in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Um, One of the profound changes, of course, has been where an industry has simply gone and died, um, and what that's done to the local community. And the idea that the museum is the place where you look back at what was, um, and again, trying to turn that round out of that loss and longing to build something that is a positive for the local community. Um, a very good example of that was in the National Trust Castle of Penryn uh, in North Wales. It was built in the 1830s. It's a great pretend Norman castle, and it was built on the proceeds above all, of the local slate quarry. Uh, which was exporting more Welsh slate um, than anywhere else all around the world. Huge fortune. Um, That money allowed the family to build not only a great castle, but a picture collection that includes Gainsborough's, Constable's, Rembrandt's. A A wonderful collection now held by the National Trust. The slate quarry itself, of course, hardly functions any longer. Um, uh, It's much reduced, and the life of the community has been much diminished as a result of that. And there was a long history of hostility between the workers of the slate quarry, whose ancestors had certainly been exploited. There were terrible strikes and lockouts around 1900. Um, The National Trust has now decided to put the fact of the state quarry the work of the state quarry and the workers there right at the heart of the presentation of the castle reminding everybody that it was their work that made this all possible the result has been an extraordinary reconciliation if you like between the local population the families that used to work in the state quarry and the castle and a real sense of shared pride in what was made. No longer nostalgia and loss for something that's gone, but an awareness that that has built something that is now central to the new economy of the region, tourism, that they are also going to be part of and uh, and, and, and can shape. So museums, again, perhaps uniquely, can turn what seemed like a, a, a past that had been taken away into an asset on which you can still
1: build. There's been some sort of political discomfort recently expressed in some quarters about the idea that history is malleable, that it changes, that the past isn't just sort of fixed and concrete. It's interesting we're talking about the need for museums to change and the stories they tell changing. Do you think this says something about the political relationship with, with history in the present moment?
2: I hope that one of the things that comes out of this series is to make clear that every generation has to rethink the past and rewrite the past. We always have done. It's what everybody does. We have to do, because we have to keep rethinking who we were, understanding how we've got to where we are now. And because we have a different question about now, that means looking differently at the past. What is very special, I think, about the British tradition of engaging with our history is that that has never, ever been controlled by the centre. In France, quite uh, to take the obvious example, the French state, the French government has always decided what French history is, what will be taught in schools and every school will study the same thing. There is a French official view of history. We've never had that in our country. We've always felt that history, that everybody has to explore their history for themselves. And what is very powerful, I think, coming out of these 20 museums we're visiting is that every local museum, every local community is deciding for itself which bits of its history need to be revisited, uh, commented on in a different way, or brought out of relative uh, neglect and brought into the spotlight. That's one of the great strengths of our country, I think, that we don't have central control of who we think we are. We decide ourselves who we think we are. And museums are absolutely central to that. So, of course, our local politics or universities, schools, but museums have almost a unique role to play in this. Because as the, uh, and that's why we chose to do this series about museums outside London. There's been great debate about the extent to which central government should be making the decisions on this. We wanted to demonstrate that the tradition in Britain has always been that this is decided by people for themselves, not at the centre of government.
1: Has making this series, obviously you were in charge of the British Museum for years and years, has making this series changed
2: your view of museums and their role at all? It hasn't changed my view at all. It's reminded me that museums of this country were set up for the citizens, that they are civic institutions. What it has also confirmed is the level of energy and engagement in every museum right across the country. I mean, this is one of the parts of our public national life, which is extraordinarily energetic at the moment and flourishing. And everywhere we go, there are a group of people who are working very hard, very imaginatively, to engage a public in new questions. And everywhere we go, we find a public that is being engaged as never before. What do you think museums will look like in 20 years' time? I think very much as they do Now, the museum now is already so different from the cliche stereotype uh, of the past. They will, I think, look more and more like places where the citizens themselves engage with what is going on there. And the citizens themselves also take part in deciding what should go on there. Because what has been very striking is that everywhere we go, the developments have been shaped by discussion with the local community. So the citizens not only see their own history, not only see their own stories told, they also decide which stories they want to see explored. And they take part in the presentation and the telling of those stories. That is a big difference. That, I think, is the biggest change. Um, And it's been made much easier, of course, because of the internet, because of digital connections. Um, But the citizens are now co-curators. And that's a big step forward. The role of the curator is now not just to look at the collection, to keep it safe, to explore it, research it. It's also to invite the citizens to join in presenting those stories to the public. Finally, then, are there any
1: stories or surprises in the course of making this series that we've not talked about so far?
2: There certainly have been some surprises. The biggest surprise for me was the Museum of Derry, London Derry. I was absolutely convinced that that museum would have to choose an object that related to the, the troubles and the unhappy histories that all of us know connected with that city, In fact, they chose something completely different because they wanted to go back to a period before the Troubles, and they chose a shirt because Derry, London Derry, was the great centre of shirt manufacture for Britain. 40% of Britain's shirts were made there uh, in the 1920s for 100 years. They were exported around the world. Until the 1970s, it was the great employer in the city. It employed across the a religious divide. It united everybody in work and in generally very friendly memories of a period when the city functioned as one. And they've chose, they have chose that object. I'd never heard of the shirts of Londonderry, um, but they have used that to bring all kinds of people into the museum who had worked in the factories And they'd used it also as the basis to think about how you develop the new fashion industry, a new textile industry in Northern Ireland. And so they've turned the past into a basis of shared enthusiasm, shared memory, really shared memory on which you can build, and also as something that can play a part in the economic renewal of the city. That was a huge surprise to me that a museum could aim at something so big and choose something, to me, so unexpected.
0: That was Neil McGregor. His radio series, The Museums That Make Us, is set to be broadcast on BBC Radio 4 from the 7th of March. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.